I started a series last week called Building a Healthy Relationship with the Lord out of John chapter 10. And so what I wanted to do this morning is obviously preach, but more just speak to you and just talk to you. Because when certain things happen, certain events, and there's many, there's many types of these things that take place in our lives sometimes that seem to contradict everything that we have established that we believe in the Lord that seem to contradict our belief system or seem to contradict something. We're going this way and this happens and there's no explanation and it brings up doubts and anger and confusion and challenge in a sense. It shakes our theology. Who's experienced this? Many people. All right. And so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that this morning and hopefully to drive a stake deep into the ground for this church but also for your life. And it's easier to believe that everything that happens is just God. It's actually easier to believe that. It's not true, but it's easier because then the questions don't arise. It's easier to just believe, well, God, just everything that happens is the Lord. Friends, at some point we will have to wrestle. If you really build a relationship with the Lord, you'll begin to have to wrestle with the Scripture on that because it's not what the Scripture teaches. It's just not. For Jesus, in John chapter 10, in his outline of this is what a new covenant relationship will look like with me as a shepherd. And that's what we started last week. He gives this, in a sense, an outline because they're not anymore going to be dictated to by the law. Their relationship with God is not going to be by the law. So Jesus begins to describe this relationship of which there are going to be many players, hirelings and, and wolves and the thief and himself and other sheep and so forth, as we discussed last week. But for him, in that description... To have to point out that in this relationship there will be required of you an ability to discern between the thief and myself. It is in that description that he says the thief comes to kill, steal and destroy. I have come that you may have life. And so the new covenant relationship he says this will require in a sense an ability for you to, to discern at certain points what was the Lord and what was not. So I believe very quickly to go through this, that Jesus Christ is perfect theology. And by that, I'm just going to read this to you just for the sake of time. By that I mean he is the perfect representation of what the Father is like. It is easier to simply believe that God is the author of everything that happens. But the Bible teaches us he is not. Jesus declared when he came, he said, I have come to reveal the Father. He said, if you want to know what the Father is like, look at me. That's why I say he's perfect theology. Everything Jesus did was a description, was, a, was, you see this, you see what I do, the way I think, the way I, everything that the Father is like, I am revealing to you. And then he turned and he healed the sick, he raised the dead, he cast out demons, every form of demonic oppression left, every sickness bowed in his presence. He was revealing what the Father is like. Then he went to the whipping post, where he made a payment, an actual payment in the spiritual realm for physical pain, pain and for sickness. That happened at the whipping post. That's why the Bible says, by his stripes, you are healed. He made a payment at the whipping post. Then he went, he became sin, the Bible says, and went to the cross. And with pure, spotless blood, became a payment for sin, so that we could receive righteousness that has nothing to do with us. It's actually incredibly good news. He made a payment for sin. Then he descended, sinless, into the grave. The wages of sin is death. Death is owed to anyone with sin. It's a wage. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Jesus descends. Death sees him. There's no sin. 
death is defeated. So he comes back from the grave and he becomes the giver of eternal life. And everything that he did, he said, I'm here to reveal what my father is like. So, I don't believe that God authors sickness, pain, or punishment. What I'm talking about, I know it's sensitive, and I know for some people it will jolt you, and for some people it's not anything new. But I don't believe he authors pain, punishment, or sickness. What do you mean people say, well, the Bible says God disciplines. Of course he disciplines. That's not what punishment is. Punishment, the Bible in 1 John 4, says that anybody who fears punishment from God that involves torment or fear has not been made complete or mature in his love. In other words, they have not understood him and who he is. And so there's a lot of questions that come. I wrote it this way, however, his discipline will not be torment or punishment in any way that will contradict anything that the son made a payment for. Because if God puts on a person anything that Jesus paid for, that's a divided kingdom. Yeah? Divided kingdom won't stand. That's why Jesus never turned anyone away, said, well, this one's from my father, so I'm not going to heal you. That never happened. Because the divided kingdom won't stand. Anything that Jesus paid for, the Father won't put that on a person. He will discipline you by holding you close and accountable, by restricting your options and your choices because you're not making good ones. It's like I do with my son. Go to your room. Oh, I don't do that, but you know, that kind of thought is you restrict the choices because with all this freedom that you have, the choices that you're making are actually damaging you. So because of my love, I'll restrict your options. It's called discipline. The age-old question arises when things like this take place or anything that has taken place that is similar in your life. You might have thoughts coming to your mind right now like this or like that or anything that's happened. This age-old question arises, well, why do bad things happen to good people? Gideon asked it of the Lord in Judges chapter 6. He said to the Lord, this angel appears to him and says, Gideon, mighty man of valor, the Lord is with you. His response is, for the Lord is with me, why are all these things happening to us? God gives him no answer. He says, go in this might of yours. That's what he says. In other words, he says, take what you feel and position yourself under God to become an answer. That's the only answer he gets. And then you know the story of Gideon. But in every time where there's going to be questions, it's, why do bad things happen to good people? Does God allow it? Does he not? Is it the enemy? Well, you can't blame everything on the enemy. And then, well, you can. It's like I used to have young kids come to me, and I used to live when I just went into ministry, and I sold everything. I was much younger. And uh, so it didn't have a lot, but I gave everything away, sold everything, and I went to literally live in a closet in a church that was very large, and it was in the middle of a church and a school and multiple different entities, like books and a theological college, all these different things. And I lived in this. They cleared out an old closet, put me in there, And the school that surrounded me was the school I got expelled from, which was very interesting. (laughs) So that was interesting. And it's a school where my cousin got in as much trouble as I did. But (laughs) the Lord is the Redeemer. And they used to come and knock on my door at 6 o'clock in the morning at exam time and say, hey, can you pray for me So for my exam? So I said, well, did you study? No. I said, well, I mean, I'll pray for you, but you actually got to read. You actually got to study. But this question arises, well, everything's the enemy. Or no, everything's God. And in the body of Christ, you have this various uh, ways that people deal with this issue and with these questions. We're going to 
look at certain points and just certain things that I've structured. But the Bible says that God is love, God is light, God is spirit. Those are the three that the Bible says that he is. So Jesus in John 10 says, I'm inviting you into a relationship. And you have to know that he comes to give life. That I have come to give life. The Bible says that, that life is the light of man. So when the Bible says that God is light and God is love, the description of that that Jesus gives us is I have come to give you life to the full. I have come to give you life. It will be light and love to you. It's life. Life itself. Vitality. And he is spirit. So that life comes from a realm that we don't see. That's the basis of faith. So Jesus gives us this description. In this relationship I'm inviting you into, you have to understand that I am good. Not me, Clayton. God. God is good. And I've come to give you life. There will be things that will happen that you won't understand. And that's why I'm defining for you what is me and what is not. It is the devil who comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Who read that uh, book, Pilgrim's Progress? You know the guy he fights at the end, Apollyon? Okay, that's actually the enemy, it's the Greek word for the destroyer. He comes to kill, steal, and destroy. The word destroy there is the word apolemai. It's the work of the enemy. How do we respond? The response, and let me just say this quickly, the response that is given often from certain branches, shall we say, of God's people is extremely cruel and extremely damaging. We point at the person and say, there's not enough faith or something that was wrong. Friends, that infuriates me. It's not true. And it's not right, and it's not fair. It's cruel. It's not in the nature of our Father. It's just not. So we will not respond that way, not in this house. So, four things that we're going to look at. We're going to spend a long time on the second one. The first one will be choosing Him when we don't understand. The second one will be navigating the waters of contrast. The third will be what we don't do and what we can do. So, number one, choosing Him... When I don't understand. Sometimes it's just better to say, I don't know. And we have to be okay with that. We know in part and we see in part. And sometimes it's better to say, I don't know. Versus coming up with some fancy answers from scripture that offer no help because they're not based on truth and therefore they do not have freedom and liberty attached to them. Hello? I'll give you a few stories. The best way I can describe this is by giving you a few stories, something that I've personally had to wrestle with as a person who has asked this question a lot, especially from new believers or from the unsaved. When I get asked this question from a person who is not saved, let me just say that the answer is impossible because they have not had the love of God shed abroad in their heart. They're not spiritually discerned. The Bible says that not that they're our enemy. We're actually called to love them. With all our hearts, we love them. They're not projects. We love them as people. But they're not spiritually discerned. So they look for uh, how to line things up with logic, linear thinking, but it's never going to take place. And then the love of God is shed abroad in your hearts. And the Bible says when that happened to the disciples in Luke 24, it says suddenly they understood. Understanding, spiritual understanding, comes from a realm that we don't see. But it actually impacts your thoughts and your brain and your ability to understand. Everyone here knows that. And that's why sometimes debate on this topic with a person who does not know the Lord, some people are called to do it, but not everyone is. There's a guy by the name of Rabbi Zacharias. Who knows him? He's like what I would call a C.S. Lewis of our day. A guy like that is called to that. 
It's absolutely brilliant. So, where are we? Some stories. Just a quick, in 2010 or 11, set up about three or four nights in a row with a gallbladder issue. And I had this gallbladder issue, extremely painful. You don't want to eat, you can't do anything. You're swallowing the whole thing. And I sat up in my like living room chair, you know, like a throne kind of thing. And, um, and I actually took two belts and I put them together and I strapped them around my waist so that I could sleep because the doctor said I had to sleep sitting up. There's nothing I could do. They wanted to do surgery. I was stubborn. I said no. All these things. And uh, I sat up for three nights every night, strapped myself to a chair, and I believe in healing. And I've prayed for many people that have been healed. But there I sit. The fourth day, this girl in our church, she was my age, she knocks on the door. She says, hi. Um, it was around Christmas time. She said, I, I want to go to Christmas in another state with her family. And I have a gallbladder issue. She says, I've been sitting up for a couple nights and struggling, and it's painful. But I, you, know, you can't eat fat. Fat destroys you, and that's the issue. She said, but I want to go and eat the lamb and the ham and the turkey and whatever else they were again. She said, I just want to do it and have no problem. <laughs> so she's like, it's, I don't know if you understand. It's quite painful. Yep, get it. <laughs> And so she says, uh, I've come so you can pray for me. So inside I was like, great. So I said, sure, come in. And I laid hands on her. As I prayed for her, instantaneously she gets healed. Literally, swelling goes down, pain goes, everything's gone, right? I sit up that night strapped to a chair. <laughs> the reality is, I don't understand that. I don't understand. God, why? The Bible says he shows no personal favoritism. None. I have no way to understand it, but I just know that he's good. I just know that he's good. And it doesn't affect my opinion of who he says he is. Friends, the man in John chapter 9 that we went over last week, the man born blind, Jesus healed him. He could now see for the first time. Imagine what that was like. But when Jesus told him who he was, he said, I'm looking for the Messiah. He said, it is I who speak to you. He had a greater reaction at a revelation of who Jesus was than when he got healed. We have to understand that. There was a far greater reaction at the revelation of who Jesus was than what Jesus had done for him. So, another one, quick story. We had a girl in our youth a number of years ago. Young, young, she graduated from the youth. She was 22 or 23, she died suddenly, just suddenly. I was about to stand up and preach, and Luke actually, he phoned me and said uh, this girl had died. What? I mean, she was like a daughter to us. So I drove to the hospital, and there was her body. And I stayed with her body, because I believe that God raises the dead. I've seen it in Africa. And so I stayed with her body for an hour and a half, and the mother joined me, and we prayed a long time and it took a long time for me to get those uh, her voice begging me to bring her child back out of my head you know and I know with death it's different but it doesn't change my opinion of who he is it just doesn't that happens I prophesied over a girl once 12 years ago 12 years ago I was laying hands on this girl she was 16 and there was a small life group in South Africa, maybe six people, small little group of people. And I lay hands on this girl, and the strangest thing happened to me, and some of you may not have a context for this, 
but I went into like a visionary mode as I touched her. It was kind of weird, to be honest. And it almost pulled me, like, I can't ex it almost like pulled me forward, like into this place. And I saw this uh, place in my mind's eye, but my eyes were closed. I was overcome by it. And I saw this, this place that I have no description for, that I have no explanation for. The best way I could explain it was Teletubby land. It was perfect. It was these rolling hills and it was these creatures. And the peace that I experienced was so beyond what I had understood before. And that's what kind of pulled me in, was the sense of peace. And I, I had no context for it. I said, God, I... And I had to, like, pull myself out of that. And I said to her, I don't know what this means. Because everyone could tell in the room, the whole atmosphere shifted. And so I said, soon, soon, you're going to come into peace that I've never understood. God's going to do something. I didn't know what it meant. I didn't try and describe. I just said what I knew. And then I saw all these, like, knives and stuff in the back, and they had family written on, and I said you have issues with your family that God wants to restore. The next day she had a family gathering. Her whole family was there and they had a massive reconciliation. She was 16 years old. Three days later, she died of a heart attack. And what I saw, I believe, was where she was going. She was saved. And I have no understanding for that. That's what I'm saying. I don't understand that. I don't know. Why didn't God just heal her? I don't know. 16. Sudden heart attack. She wasn't sick. But I, I saw it. No, I don't understand that. I have no context for that. I have no answer for that. But I know he's good. There was an elder, just one last one. There was an elder while he was a leader, I can't remember, in another church that I was a part of many years ago. And we were having a prayer meeting, big church, 15, 1,600, 200, 300 people in the prayer meeting. He was riding his Harley Davidson. He owned Harley. He was riding his Harley to the prayer meeting, and he got killed in a motorbike accident on the way to worship. And he got squashed between two trucks. And so we were told of this over the microphone, and his son was there standing next to me. And so we began to pray like crazy, because we didn't know what had happened. And as we pray, I saw in my head Isaiah 57. I don't know what it said at the time, but basically it says that we do not comprehend that sometimes God takes the righteous to spare them from evil. And I saw that, and instantly I knew that he was gone and that it was okay. The funny thing about that is that every time we have something that God kind of gives an answer, we think, we want a method. We think, oh, so when that happens, that's always the case. No, that was the case then. We want some strategy, some perfect method. It doesn't work like that. It's relational. It's no longer the law. Does that make sense? Sometimes it's better to just say, I don't know. I just don't know. Can we be good with that? We see in part. We know in part. Now, how do we navigate waters of contrast? And the reason the Lord gave me that sentence is it's a sailor's term. And sometimes when you go through a storm in your life, you feel like you've lost direction. It's like the compass broken, now you don't know where you are, and you lose your direction completely. And all sorts of emotions and feelings arise, doubt and fear and many things. How do you navigate the waters of contrast in a relationship with the Lord where you feel like you've lost your way through some tragedy, through something that takes place that is not, doesn't make any sense? Who's been there? All right. I personally find that when that happens, 
it's often a place where I actually begin to discover who God really is. That doesn't mean he authored it. It means he uses it. Someone said God's God. He can win with a pair of twos because he's God. He can take anything and use it for good. That's easy. He's the Lord. doesn't mean he authored it. I've seen many times when a death or a great sickness on a parent or something, it can bring an entire family together because God will use anything for his glory, anything for good because of his love doesn't mean he authored it. Luke chapter 13. We're going to go to verse 1. This happened in Jesus' day, just like it happened with Gideon. Why do bad things happen to good people was his question. In Jesus' day, Luke 13, verse 1 says, There were present at that season some who told him, being Jesus, about Galileans. Now, Jesus was from there, right? He was a Galilean. Some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam, so there was a tower that had fallen on these Jewish people and killed 18 people. On those 18 on whom the Tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. So they come to Jesus. We have to understand the Old Testament mindset was that when something bad has happened, it's because they've done something wrong, because they were used to a law structure. And Jesus has come. He changed everything. So these things happen to these people. They come to Jesus, and they say, why did this happen? These are Galileans. These are people of God. They were offering sacrifice. That was the Jewish form of worship. So they were in a worship service. They were worshiping. And the Roman guy comes along, kills them, and takes their blood and mixes it with the blood of the animals and the sacrifice. I mean, that's extreme. And they said, so why did that happen? And Jesus said, in my own words, if you think this has anything to do with something they did or did not do, you've misunderstood. He said, if you think this is because of something they did or their motives or some sin issue or something punishment because of something they did wrong. You've misunderstood why I've come. The Bible says in Romans 14 that anything that is not of faith is sin. So some people read that when he says, if you don't likewise repent. Some people read that as Jesus saying, well, you better go say sorry, otherwise I'm going to get you too. Because some people have that concept of God. It's a wrong concept. What Jesus is actually doing, anything that is not of faith is sin. And they understood that in the Old Testament. He's basically saying, if you think this has anything to do with their faith, their lack of faith, that they not have enough faith when they're worshipped. I mean, who, if you think this has anything to do with their faith or something they did wrong or moral or immoral, you've not understood why I've come. And he instantly points to eternity. His repentance there that he's talking about is believing on him for salvation. He's saying it's not important how a person dies. That has nothing to do with their righteousness, but the fact that they're in grace and in God when they do. That's what's important. And he instantly takes this issue, which they cannot comprehend or understand, in a sense gives them no answer, and says, that's not the question. That's the wrong question. The right question is, I have come. Therefore, repent and believe on me, because even then in death, it points to victory. We have to understand that. I don't mean to be insensitive. Little Penny 
is with the Lord. She will never know sorrow. She will never know betrayal. She will never know sadness. She will never know defeat, failure, hurt, loss. Never. And she will be raised by the Lord and be the best of us all. Because even in what we consider failure, there's victory. Because he's come. So we have to understand that's what Jesus points to. He doesn't give them some methodical answer that appeases us. He says, actually, I've come. And so even in this, anything that takes place, there's victory. Does that mean we just say, well, then we'll just sit back and do whatever? No. We pray. We fast. We do everything that the New Testament says that we can do because we carry of his authority and his spirit. We navigate the waters of contrast. That's why it says in 1 Corinthians 15, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all peoples, of all men, mankind, the most to be pitied. Incredible verse. Let's go to Luke 7. I'm going to give you another example. John the Baptist. You guys look good. I'm trusting that this is helpful to you. I found in the past, when I really launched into healing and deliverance and prophecy and all these wonderful things, when God shows you crazy things about people and you pray for a person, they get healed and are in front of your eyes and those kind of things happen, um, I started really pursuing why people don't get healed. And I came up with all these answers. They were quite wonderful. <laughs> but what I found is that as soon as I start explaining that to people, it can end very cruelly because what happens is we give this list to someone to help them in the moment and then in years to come they approach someone else who needs healing or they, someone comes to them for something and instantaneously we all memorize this list of why something and then we see three or four of them and instantly we've positioned ourselves to blame them and that is not the heart of the Father it is just not it's just not. Luke 7, verse 18, I think it is, yes. John the Baptist. Then the disciples of John reported to him, verse 18, concerning all these things. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And that very hour he cured many infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, and many blind he gave sight. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things that you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. When the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. What did you go out to see? Go out into the wilderness to see. A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury are in king's courts. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your ways before you. For I say to you, among those born of woman, there is none greater. There is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he, in terms of in the New Testament, because we have Christ. 
John, we have to understand the incredible anointing on this man, John. There's been 400 years of silence. Who of you have ever been into an area where, you know, it's the voice of God that brings life, okay? We don't have the time to go into that. But that's what, that's what brings life. It's creation, it's life, it's salvation, it's God when God speaks. If you've ever been into an area, it's like there's been nothing spoken, there's been no voice of God in that area. You can feel the oppression, okay? You know, it's like extreme. 400 years, nothing's come forth. 400 years. Imagine the oppression. Imagine, friends, the anointing on this man. He begins to speak, to open up all of that and declare Christ is coming. The last words of the Old Testament close speaking about John the Baptist, not about Jesus. The last words of Malachi are all about this man. He pointed out the Messiah. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was spoken of by the prophets. Jesus said he was greater than all the prophets. Gabriel said he will be called great in the sight of the Lord. He was called strong in the spirit. And he was the one who baptized Jesus into his earthly ministry. People don't understand this incredible man, John. Now he's in prison. And he sends people to Jesus to say, are you the coming one? He was the one who pointed him, declared him, lived for him. He says, now you're the coming one. We don't know why. Partly maybe because he wasn't a political or figure that some people thought he should have been. He wasn't displaying what the Jewish people thought the Messiah should display. We don't know. But he asks, are you the coming one or should we look for another? From this man who's given everything and done everything and fulfilled scripture for Jesus. Jesus had just stood up in the synagogue recently, just before that, and took the scroll of Isaiah 61 and read out loud this verse. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of prison to those who are bound. Where's John? He's in prison. He's Jesus' relative. Jesus doesn't visit him. Jesus does not go set him free. He could have. He declared, I'm the one who comes to set free from prison. John's in prison. Jesus doesn't even visit him. Jesus does not set him free from prison. He says to the disciples, he repeats a list. He says, go tell John this, the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised. In other words, tell John, I'm healing the brokenhearted and I'm setting the captives free. I'm doing that which I said, which I proclaimed I would do. Then he says, oh, and tell him the poor have the gospel preached to him. It's the same list. The one thing he does not repeat is about prison. He replaces it with this. He says, oh, and tell John this, that blessed is he who is not offended because of me. That's what he says. So, to be offended at God, to be offended in general, means to stumble. The word is scandaliso. It means to entice to sin, to cause a person to distrust and desert the very one whom they ought to trust and obey. That's what it means. It means to hinder one from acknowledging the authority of another. Incredible. It comes from the root word scandalong, which means to be trapped or ensnared. So he says it this way. Happy are they who do not stumble, in my words, because of me. Happy are they who are not caused to distrust me because they don't understand. Happy are they who can still recognize my authority 
and the truth of who I am, even when they don't understand. Happy are they who does not become trapped or snared because of me. That was his answer. Then he begins to speak of John. And he says, what did you go out to see? A reed shaken by the wind? You know what that was talking about? It's talking about, did you expect to go see a man who was wavering? He says, that's not who John is. But that's exactly what John was doing. Are you the one who was to come? He was wavering. He was struggling. Jesus begins to speak publicly of him in the exact opposite way. Begins to honor him. Did you think this? You think John is a guy that wavers? No, he's the greatest, and he starts to honor John. Friends, we have to understand when things take place that we cannot comprehend or understand. God is not perturbed by your struggle. God is not shaken by our fight. He will begin to speak to you and to others about you to remind you of who you actually are in that moment. In that moment, the Father will draw near to you and begin to tell you who you are. I know you don't understand, but this is who you are. I know you don't understand, but this is who you are. Because Jesus came to reveal the Father, and that's exactly what Jesus did. (laughs) Because he's good. And that's who he is. I'll say it again. For Jesus, in his outline of what our relationship will look like in the new covenant, to have to identify what he does and what the enemy does, what he brings, and what the enemy is responsible for. For him to have to describe that to us means that we're being invited into a relationship where there will come a time where we don't understand, and we have to, based on trust and belief that Jesus is who he says he is, that we don't base it on experience. If I formed a belief system based on everything that he didn't do that I thought he should have, imagine if your children did that about you. You wouldn't look so hot. Just a fact, because he is the author of life, and we all have those situations. I've prayed for countless people that have had their backs healed in front of me. I have a sore back, but he's good. And the truth doesn't change that he's the healer, and this is not his desire. But I'm not offended. I'm actually still in love with him, because he's, he's the Lord. Not just because of that, because I actually have a relationship with him. And life comes from his voice, from his presence. I'll just run through these points. There are certain things we don't do and certain things we do do. What we don't do is go to war on the enemy. You don't give him that much attention. Bill Johnson says, we don't live in reaction to darkness. We live in reaction to him. So don't go to war. Just don't do that. We don't think in an Old Testament way. Just like they said about the blind man in John chapter 9. The disciples came and said, Who sinned, him or his father? Jesus like, neither. Thinking in an old wineskin, in an Old Testament way. We don't offer advice or answers that people aren't looking for. Please don't do that. Please don't become the savior. Let me explain to you why this happened. They don't care, they don't want to know, and they don't want to hear it from you. I'm just being real. We don't offer advice or questions. If they don't ask, don't. It's just what we don't do. We don't build our belief system based on what did not happen. We don't try to reason out the why, but wait. We wait. Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. You wait, and peace will come, and understanding will come. What do we do? 
New Testament verse. And I know I'm going a little longer today. We've shortened this message to about half an hour, but this is something important. And uh, I just didn't want to rush it. What do we do? Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. That's a New Testament verse. It means there was reason to weep in the book of Acts. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. When Mary came to Jesus and said, the one you love has died. That Jesus saw her weeping. And he saw the Jewish people weeping. And he wept. You weep with those who weep. You rejoice with those who rejoice. That's what we do. It's really that simple. What else do we do? You love them. You love them. You know, the Bible says encourage one another. Encourage one another. Build one another up. Encourage one another. Serve one another. All the one another's. What else do you do? Do what they ask you to do. It's literally that simple. Do what they ask. Practically, if they need help, if they need meals, if they need whoever those people are, help them. Do what they ask. The funny thing is, all the people in that situation always ask the leadership. And I'm not trying to get out of work, but if that's all the leadership did, if that's, what they, that's all they would do. That's why we have a family. That's why we have a body. Do what they ask. And by that I mean, it's not time to question anyone. It's not time to teach anyone. The Bible says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's a very sometimes difficult thing to do in a, a tragic kind of event or circumstance unless you've been there yourself. Because otherwise you imagine what you think they want and you start doing the very thing they just, just go away. Just please, just go away. Especially if you're on your high horse with the Bible and let me help you. No, go help someone else. I'm just fine. If you've been there, you can, in a sense, do unto others because you know what they're going through. That's why sometimes a person with a little bit of age, a little bit of wisdom, comes alongside and says, come with me. Friends, we are called to walk with the Lord in a sheep pen with other sheep where things happen that we cannot understand sometimes. But he is good, he is love, he is life, he is spirit, and he is light. That's who he is. The one thing the Bible says about God that he is not, says he is not a man that he should lie. That's who he is. He is who he says he is. You guys still good for me to read you something? I wrote this on Friday. It just came out of me in about five minutes. It's just because of my own journey with the Lord. I wrote, anything that has befallen humanity that is evil, wrong, wicked, destructive, or causes pain or torment has come to pass because of the lie of the enemy that humanity partnered with in the garden. The law, with all of its bloodshed, its sacrifices, its rules, its punishment, was not God's original intention. The Garden of Eden was. In Eden, man fell out of trust with God, based on a lie from the evil one, and everything that follows, everything that follows, is not God's original intention. Within God's restorative process came the law, which also did not, in a sense, happen the way he chose it. People chose it. He desired to speak with them as a people, a kingdom of priests, to reveal himself to them all, to communicate with them all. They were afraid. They said no. And Moses became a mediator unto them. He sent them prophets to teach them, to show them. They said no. 
and they persecuted the prophets and ignored them. Then he wanted to be their God and him their people. They said no. They wanted a king, even though God warned them against it, and they got Saul. Why? It started in the beginning. Did God really say? That's what the enemy said. And you will not surely die. It's like him saying this. God only says that because he is holding out on you. He is hiding something from you. So it was a lie. The first concept composed by the wicked one, the first web that he spun, placed God into question. Creation questioning the creator. And thus it became a fundamental, foundational part of the very design of the sinful nature, of the human condition, to question God's goodness, his integrity, and his character. And from that time onwards, everything changed. Whenever something happens that we don't understand, traumatic or tragic, our first point is often to blame God. The first truth we doubt is in his existence or his goodness. The first question that encircles our soul is if he wills us bad or evil, and therefore this is his doing. So God sent his son, his only son, even though he was not on trial. And we killed him too. But God's plan is revealed, and from that day, that great and glorious day, the dismantling of that lie that came in the garden is made possible in Jesus Christ. He gives us his nature, his thoughts, his righteousness, should we choose them. And this is why only Jesus describes eternal life as knowing God. And how have many responded to that? We have replaced relationship with religion. We have replaced family with institution. And God is still reaching out constantly restoring the truth of who he is, yet still we question him. So he sent of his own spirit deep into our being so that from within us we can cry out, Abba, Father, so we can begin to know and trust him again. That's what happened, friends. And he is good. Amen.